Hello and welcome to episode 21 of the Headstuff Podcast with Joseph Roach. I'm here with Connor Wilkins. Hello. Hi. Um, this, uh, you may have know, you may have come to know Joseph from um, being one of the last or the top 100 people. In the top 100, yeah. In the top 100 of the potential people going to Mars on the Mars One mission. Um, so he was the only Irish contestant, I suppose we call them. Um, and he was the one then that spoke out against it. Yeah. Uh, so he was on the front of all the papers and there was a, 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 a article in the Guardian and all this kind of stuff. Um, uh, and he's, he's, but aside from all that, he's a scientist. And to get to that level. He, yeah. To yeah. get to that last hundred, you know. Yeah, it's pretty, but then, as he says, it, it, there wasn't much to do to get to that last hundred. I mean, he didn't have to do, have a physical, the only interview was over Skype. Um, so that kind of all doesn't mean anything. Um, but he's an actual scientist. He's an I know, astrophysicist. but still, it wasn't like collect some tokens from the back of a cornflake. But it might as well have been. I mean, if you're doing an interview over Skype... Yeah, but you have to know something about science. Yeah, but a lot of people know something about science, you know. Yeah, well, not to that level. Well, maybe not, but I, I think I think he's kind of shown it to be all a bit of a... Maybe a scam, I don't know if scam's the right oh, word. Oh, yeah, no, he's right in what he was saying, but yeah. what I'm saying... I mean, is he's also right to say, hopefully he's wrong, and that they do go to Mars. Yeah. But it doesn't seem very likely at the moment. Yeah, well, not for a while. No. Well, he doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't see that that, that mis- particular that, that mission, mission yeah, will yeah. go. Right, yeah. Um, but he's a uh, an astrophysicist and a professor in uh, Trinity College Dublin, um, and he's a he he doesn't quite like the term science communicator for himself, but I think he's really good. Yeah, science communicator. I think he's he's he's, he's bringing science um, into the media in many ways, and he's talking about it, and he's he's good at it. I think, um, and that's what we talk about a lot here. Yeah. Um, and Mars and the Martian. Um, so yeah, I really we talked about yeah Mars, Martian, interstellar, yeah. Yeah, yeah. gravity, yeah, movies, all that kind of stuff. Um, so he's really fun and really interesting to talk to, and uh, I really enjoyed this. Me too. Yeah. So hopefully you do too. Um, yeah, we'll just go straight into it. This is episode twenty-one with Joseph Roach. So Joseph Roach, thank you for coming on to the Heads of Podcast. Thanks very much for having me. And we're, we're here with Connor as well. Hello. Hello. Um, so, uh, uh, Joseph, um, you, you're you the guy that everybody knows because uh, you spoke out about Mars One. That's right. Um, so, uh, but let's let's just go back a little bit further. I, I tried to do a little bit of um, uh, online stalking of you to, to get to know all about you. Uh, I said that was boring. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, there's some good stuff there. Um, well, uh, I suppose let's go back. You, you studied physics and, and astrophysics in, in Trinity. I did indeed, yeah. Uh, and then, uh, well, first of all, how, what, was, was that always something you wanted to do? Um, depends on the audience. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if, um, yeah, if I'm speaking about uh, science and the importance of science, then yeah, uh, it's, it's a passion. Particularly if I'm applying for funding or something, then okay. of course it's always been my passion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I've always known science is the right path yeah. for me. But <laughs> no, if I'm speaking to especially young people who are trying to make up their minds about what to do next, then I'm always a little bit more honest. And I explain that when I was in secondary school, all through secondary school, I was going to art college. That was oh, all I wanted right. to do. Yeah, art was my, my favourite subject. It was all I thought about. And it was only in uh, sixth year I... Um, started going to a couple of the college open days and then um, looked at actually what that would entail, like studying art and what a career in art would be. And I realized that, in fact, the most important thing you need for a career like that is probably talent, which I didn't have. 
Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, then I started thinking about about my future then, um, which I know like that, that's in sixth year. I should probably be considering these these things a bit sooner than that. But I kind of thought about it then and realized that you know I, I was studying chemistry, physics, and biology. I love science. Physics was probably my best subject. Right. So I just added a bit of logic to my reasoning and yeah. realized that I shouldn't just be doing art because it's yeah. been something I was thinking of. I, sh- I should actually do something that I like and that I might actually be, be good at. Um, so yeah, that's how I ended up in in science. I, I chose general science in Trinity because physics was my favorite subject, but I wasn't, I wasn't sure. Like I, I yeah, liked yeah. chemistry and biology as well. So mm. came to Trinity and then, yeah, over the years, just physics was the one that stood out for me and right. then specialized in astrophysics. Okay. Uh, so that that's how I got that far. And then um again had a, another point in my life where i was trying to figure out what what i should do next right and i got quite lucky it was it was a time in ireland where there was just more money than sense yeah um like i, I look at people now who are, who are facing the same challenges and you finish college now with a science degree and it's almost expected that you go get a master's as well and yeah. if you want to get a phd it's mm. it's carnage trying to to compete with everyone getting phds but i was just that that lucky couple of years where they were giving away PhDs, um, like there was six so or seven of them. You didn't work for it. No, well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I got I got lucky. I think if I was, if I was applying now for the same PhDs, it'd be a lot tougher. I mean, in particular because my area is astrophysics, yeah. and in the intervening years, the Irish government, for whatever reason, has decided that's not priority area funding so oh. the the model for scientific funding has changed right. and now they don't fund uh, so-called basic research so right. they only fund applied research and obviously applied research is very important it's what mm. gives us the the medicine and the technology and all the the, the things that we need as, a, as an economy but i think it's a little bit short-sighted to also cut basic research because basic research is is like the the broader questions it's it's what you need to ask before you get to the, the yeah, applied science so yeah. fortunately anyone who was doing astrophysics or particle physics or mathematics they were all cut as as areas of, of research so oh. if i was trying to get the same phd now it just it just wouldn't exist right well is is there any uh does it seem like it's they're going back that like they're going to start giving more funding now that, well i you know mean the way we're out of the recession they keep telling us we're out of the recession yeah i mean this year in particular there was a, a huge number of scientists who who spoke out against this policy and said right. that, you know if if the government is asking us as scientists to to bring through the next generation of of young people and, and inspire them to to study science technology and engineering and maths and and then to be doing research and to be bringing in PhD students and postdoctoral students, I mean, we can't we can't do that if basic research is 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 cut. Yeah. I mean, we, we can't all do applied science. And if we do, if we if we go down that route, then ultimately the the scientific output of this country will will falter because yeah. I mean, one of the arguments they make is they look at the biggest discoveries in science over the last number of years and like the Nobel prizes and stuff and, and look at the original proposals for that research, right. and it's almost always basic research they always start off with a very broad question i'm not sure what they're looking for because yeah. you know that that's how science works so yeah we we would hope that it'll get addressed and that basic research will, yeah. will get funded at some point in the future that's what all the scientists want but at the moment there's no indication that'll happen we got a we got a nobel prize for science this year didn't we we did only our second ever irish right. scientist to win a nobel prize so just last week uh bill bill campbell yeah. uh, did zoology in trinity 
and then moved to the States and yeah, got a third of a Nobel Prize in medicine. So, so hopefully that might help. I, yeah, you'd hope Maybe. so. I mean, like we have such a great tradition in this country of Nobel Prizes mm. in, in literature, literature. Yeah. and we, we have been underperforming a bit in, in science yeah. in terms of Nobel Prizes. Who was the first one? Uh, Ernest Walton. So that's going back a few years, but uh, a good few years. He split the atom uh, back in the, oh God, I should know the dates for this, the 20s? Right. Someone will correct me on that. Could, okay. be, could have been the 30s. But he um, he taught in Trinity for many, many years. Um, oh. Only retired in the in the 60s. And if ever in Trinity, there's a, a plaque on the Fitzgerald building commemorating his... Um, his achievement because up until last week the only Irish scientist with a Nobel Prize so right. there was a massive campaign uh, before the Samuel Beckett Bridge was named oh, to get okay. an Irish scientist on it and we thought the Walton Bridge it makes sense Yeah, yeah but um, obviously Samuel Beckett is also someone we're very proud of so yeah. the next bridge we'll get maybe I'm sure there's loads of Samuel Beckett stuff though well, I yeah, feel like I should know who this Walton person is and I, I didn't yeah I mean that's, that's the thing that, that's something we, we're always mm. making a point of scientists like we, we should hold him in as high regard as, as some of our Nobel laureates in literature but yeah Poor old Ernest Walton doesn't get as much attention as he deserves. Yeah, yeah. That's Outside of science. Of course, in science, he gets huge yeah, attention. Sure. But yeah, uh, I, I went the other way to you, actually. I, I, I ended up doing, I went to art college. Oh, really? And then by the end of art college, I got really interested in science. Ah, so, so it's possible. It's <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I also don't have much talent for art. Um, but I got through college. so that's <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't have much talent for science, but you can, you can compensate a lot with just hard work and long yeah, hours. Yeah. Well, I might try and, I might try and do a science degree as well. <laughs> I'd love to. I, just, I've, I don't know when it happened, really, but I just got very interested in not being an actual scientist, but just, you know, r- reading about science and just, the, I don't know, the interesting stuff. But I mean, that's, that's, that's crucial as well. I mean, yeah, like, he, there's no usually. point in, in all of us scientists being in the lab and doing our research if we can't get the public excited and engaging yeah. as well. So, I mean, what we need are, are people to science. become interested in science and then yeah. become advocates for scientific literacy and yeah. just general science education of the public. Yeah, I think science communication is nearly as important. Not as important as science, but it's hugely important. Well, yeah, I mean, like I kind of think now in this day and age, because, I mean, funding drives most of this. And mm. obviously we have our concerns in Ireland, but even in at European level, like the, the, the big money for anyone in Ireland comes from European research. So right. that's like funding that comes from the European Commission through their Horizon 2020 framework, mm. they call it. And that has very clear guidelines on a thing called responsible research and innovation, which is basically giving a mandate to anyone who's doing research in Europe that they have to engage with the public. They have to make sure that everyone is aware of, of what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. And it's gotten the point now, if you're a brilliant scientist, but you have no interest in engaging with the public or you've no ability really to to communicate your science in a way that's clear that people can understand and, and be interested in or at least be aware of what you're doing yeah, then yeah. You, you are failing as a scientist at some level now as you say it might not be the most crucial thing obviously being a scientist and making the, the discoveries and doing the work in the lab is, is very important but I think being able to communicate your science has become massively important yeah that's why someone like obviously Carl Sagan, I think, is the the big science communicator. He's like the the marquee name for it. He yeah, like especially anyone like me who's, who's in astrophysics, he's he's the person we, we yeah. hold up as as the example, and he's but also a brilliant scientist as well. Brilliant scientist as well. But the funny thing is, it's and that's another issue that we probably have to deal with ourselves as scientists is there's um there's an it's called it the Carl the Carl Sagan effect, but I guess uh, the contemporary version would be the Brian Cox effect, which is that even though these guys are incredible communicators and do so much for our discipline in terms of getting the public up to at least a certain level of of literacy on what we're doing they 
they get a little bit um, cast aside in their own in their own field. For some reason, the the other scientists, and maybe it's just out of envy that they're getting lots of attention, or maybe they think that because they're spending so much time He's a producing, not a scientist. Yeah, 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 which I think is a little bit unfair. I mean, like something something we we know from looking at scientists and listening to scientists is that we definitely shouldn't have all of our scientists speaking in public and putting them on TV. Definitely, all yeah. scientists should should go through that. Uh, experience and, and learn how to do it but that doesn't mean that we we need all scientists to be doing yeah. it some scientists are better suited to just stay in the lab and leave their colleagues to to go out and yeah. do the radio and tv but i mean someone like carl sagan or even brian cox like poor brian cox gets a lot of a lot of stick but he's had a huge within the scientific community he does yeah does he? yeah like a lot that. of people it's a kind of snobbery or something there. yeah, yeah. That's exactly what it is scientific snobbery yeah um and, and there shouldn't be i mean like he's he's done more for our discipline in terms of public engagement than than anyone could and yet yeah. we we don't give him the respect he deserves because of that seems to just have a great talent for breaking things down to you know letting you know people like myself who don't yeah scientists actually so go good at, yeah. you know, wow you know in whatever his analogies and everything that he uses in the shows and, his, and in his books yeah um i love brian cox yeah, he's yeah. Great. i mean it, it, it's hard work as well i mean <laughs> i think people think oh he's just He's cashing in and getting his his salary from the BBC, so he doesn't yeah. have to worry about doing his research. But you know, it's not it's not an easy job he has either. I mean, he's put himself out there, and mm. every time he speaks, he holds himself up for um, yeah. for ridicule. He can, he can be called out in the public, whereas you know, scientists in general they 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 go through a peer review process. Their work yeah. is out in the public, but generally, it's it's a quite a a safe, stringent routine they go through. If, if someone's going to challenge them, then it has to come through probably yeah. a, a peer-reviewed form as well. Whereas yeah. someone like Brian Cox can can have like newspapers going after him or yeah. or TV shows uh, speaking out against him. So you know, it's it's not it's not a straightforward, easy job he has either. Yeah, but his 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 other job at the LHC, he still works there, doesn't he? As well, he does. No, like because because he has to give so much time up to his his role in, in communication. I don't think he, he manages to do a whole lot, but like the last couple of years, he's still managed to be an author on a couple of papers. So he's, yeah. he's managing to do a bit as well. And it's, it, I know it's not easy for him, but he's also got the role of a professor of public engagement. So I think that's, mm. that's at least an, an acknowledgement from the universities that someone like him is, um, is, is invaluable. But yeah. again, th- that's another area that there's a little bit of cynicism about. And on this, in this area, I think it's a little bit more shaky in that, some of the universities are reacting to to this um, need for public engagement by by making these positions. So that we now have mm. like universities in the, in the UK in particular. It hasn't trickled over to Ireland yet, but in the UK, a couple of big universities now have full professorships, and you would be a professor of public engagement. Right. So there's a lot of people who, who actually do research in like science and society and public engagement. That, that's my my own area of research, and we'd be a little worried that. If, if you're going to be giving a professorship in that area, it should probably be to someone who's doing a lot of academic research in that area and is publishing papers yeah, and yeah. books and, and doing active research. Yeah. A lot of it will be even social science, like just looking at the societal impact of yeah. of science as a discipline. But some of the, the UK institutes seem to be going down the route that instead maybe they'll go for the celebrity scientists because it helps them. If, if the University of Manchester has Professor Brian Cox Brian Cox, as yeah. Professor of Public Engagement, then it's... It's great for them. They they know they'll get like TV time and headlines, and it's great for for communication. But it's maybe a missed opportunity in terms of getting someone in who's going to build a research area just in public engagement. So that's that's another challenge. But uh, yeah. it's again, it's it's an area that's fascinating because it's quite 
quite new and quite dynamic at the moment because yeah. it seems to be growing in terms of popularity. We have like, I mean, my own uh, feeling on it is that it's great. It, it's wonderful that we have a society, society at the moment that demands scientific standards, even from yeah. the likes of their movies. Like we've had yeah. Gravity yeah. three years ago or two years ago, Interstellar last year, and now The Martian this yeah. year. That's three massive space epics that have kind of worn their scientific accuracy as a badge of honor, which, yeah. you know, we all remember the dark times from our youth where <laughs> you wouldn't get anything like that yeah, in, in, yeah. A, in a sci-fi movie. Yeah. Uh, have you seen Watch the Martian? I have indeed. Um, yeah. An interesting thing about my, my role in uh, um, talking about Mars is that sometimes I get called upon to, to do jobs that I wouldn't have had to do okay. earlier in my career. So I wrote a review for um, uh, uh, Interstellar, Okay. Uh, for Silicon Republic last year. Um, I don't think I'm p- a particularly good movie reviewer, but <laughs> I did really love it. I got really into it. So okay. they seemed happy enough. And then they, they asked me to go see The Martian last week and I reviewed it for them. So oh, cool. uh, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's nice to go to a movie and enjoy it, but also think about like if you know, what are we looking for in terms of this? Like, are, we, are we happy that it's just entertainment or yeah. is there a deeper thing here? Or should we be happy that it's also probably going to help our discipline? Can you just sit and watch a movie or do you have to, in some way, be, mm, that's not quite accurate? <laughs> um, <laughs> if I am thinking that, I, I keep it to myself. I've definitely learned that uh, yeah, yeah. family members and uh, friends, they don't, yeah. they don't appreciate when you say... That wouldn't happen. Yeah, wouldn't happen, yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, like, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to just sit and enjoy a movie for, for what it is, but, like, there are times when it, it, it's difficult to, to just ignore it. Like, yeah. if, it's, if it's just really something where... They they could have done anything else. They could have come yeah. up with any other reason for explaining something like that. Yeah. And the same as that. Typical one is um, 2012 of the climate disaster movie <laughs> from, <laughs> like, from 2012, yeah. where like they the whole premise was based on the fact that neutrinos were mutating, right. uh, and it's kind of been that's the go-to reference for like just terrible <laughs> terrible science in a movie. Like you could have come up with anything else, and it would have held up better. But neutrinos are. Uh, part of our fabric at the moment of the universe that uh, certainly don't mutate or can't <laughs> mutate nor does that even make sense in any level so uh, so yeah no I, I yeah it's, it, i think i could enjoy a movie but if something as glaring as that pops out then it becomes a bit of a struggle yeah yeah for, I'm, I'm the same as that but i have two kind of gears in that if something kind of puts itself forward as like a scientific movie um say like the martian or interstellar or gravity and and they have something glaring like that neutrinos thing then I hate it. Like, mm. That drives me mad. But if it's something that I see as popcorn nonsense, like anything by uh, Ronald Emmerich or Michael Bay, uh, then it's just like, ah, just leave it. Just like, it's nonsense anyway. Um, I, but, I think as well, as well like if, if they're consistent, I mean, a big thing for me is, yeah, yeah like, and, and it's like that, make, making their intentions known. If you, if you build um, a framework for a movie and don't violate your own rules, then, then we're fine with that. So yeah. like, there's good sci-fi, like um, like the the likes of the Battlestar Galactica series yeah. from from a few years ago. I mean, they they made it very clear at the start that there's going to be artificial artificial intelligence. There's going to be um, um, faster than speed of light travel. Gravity um, on every ship. Gravity on every ship. Yeah, and that's. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But they were consistent with that. At yeah. no point during the series did they to get themselves out of a plot hole introduce aliens. There were no aliens. Yeah. It was no. it was all just from from humans. Yeah. Uh, and once you stay within those limits that you set up for yourself, yeah. I think it, it's fine to enjoy it. Yeah. I want to say something about the interest in science now, though, at the moment that they're actually putting so much money mm. into massive big movies like like Gravity, Interstellar, and The Martian. Yeah. Which are three of definitely 
my favorite movies of the last few yeah, years yeah and you know a lot of my friends would have the same interest in that as well for uh, for whatever reason yeah whatever we're being exposed to now you know online or you so know, these better, amazing facts that you hear yeah, yeah it's just you know well it's it's better for i think moviegoers in general just enjoyability if if you know that not only is this a wonderful movie just in terms of like an artistic visual experience but it's it's also right in terms of the the science it's trying to portray yeah. and i think yeah. like a really interesting thing about it is how those movies can can also be harnessed in a way to to help science which, which is a very interesting thing i mean yeah. gravity got so much attention and so much publicity that when it came to interstellar they they thought I mean, early in the process, that could have gone a very different way. But I think they decided we're going to try and get this as accurate as possible. Mm. And because of that, they knew they were going to have to deal with things like wormholes and black holes, which is a difficult scientific area and is yeah. usually butchered yeah, in movies. Yeah, yeah. But they got in uh, Kip Thorne, who's yeah. yeah, he's one of the, the world leaders in, in yeah. that area. And not only was that good for the, the movie and, and like the, the visuals, like if you ever see that movie and the, the, the wormhole and the black hole, it's portrayed as accurately as it's been seen anywhere not just in yeah. movies but also the in best portrayal of black hole is in that movie isn't it yeah yeah because <laughs> yeah. even in like labs like anyone doing black hole research they can't simulate that in a lab because they don't have the the budget whereas yeah. they utilize the hollywood budget to to, to do accurate yeah. scientific simulations which actually resulted in a couple of papers getting published so they actually found out yeah. some some new science from that movie which wouldn't Amazing. have happened if they didn't have that money so mm. i think when you can it's kind of like the the jurassic park thing like the the scientific consultants behind the original Jurassic Park in 1994 used the, the the publicity and the goodwill towards that movie to get, I think, the first and possibly only uh, NSF grant, the National Science Foundation in the US, grant to investigate um, dinosaur DNA. Really? So that type of grant would never have been approved. Yeah. But because there's, there was so much publicity, so much interest from the public, it actually helped the scientists. Wow. I wonder if the same thing happen again now from... You know the success of yeah these movies and movies. the interest that it's created. Well, it did for Interstellar, I suppose. Yeah, well, I think if you, if you look at NASA's involvement in the Martian, I yeah. think they they very clearly recognise yeah. how important it can be for them because, like, not only is it does it draw attention to, it, but just because NASA is portrayed so well and like yeah. obviously it's a, it's a disaster movie, but it's also showcases like all the best things about NASA, the yeah. the commitment to um, progress and, and yeah. human space exploration and and how hard work and determination and working as a team, problem yeah. solving, all the things you need to rely on. But I think it was it was most obvious from their their handling of the the discovery of flowing water on Mars a few weeks ago. Yeah. I mean, that was a massive discovery. Yeah. It obviously came out at, at around about the right time. Yeah. It was released just as a lot of moviegoers were, were going <laughs> they to They really see. found that like two years ago. Let's like, make, make a movie first. And <laughs> well, <laughs> well, they certainly found it uh, a little while ago because right. the director, Ridley Scott, came out and said afterwards that he actually knew about it ages ago. Yeah, I've read that. So yeah. he, he was told about it. Uh, now, it wasn't, wasn't long enough back that it could actually change his movie, but yeah. that's how seriously NASA were taking this this movie that they thought oh. if they could support the director by releasing a massive scientific discovery to him before the general public that, wow. that might help the movie. So they're under no illusions that this this uh, type of movie could could be used to raise the, the public uh, excitement about space exploration, yeah, yeah. but also just get to the point where something like a Mars mission has the, the public support it needs. Like at the moment, a mission to Mars is, is something that NASA are taking very seriously, but it's not going to happen for, for many, many years because yeah. the, the budget is so small. But they, I would be very surprised if there wasn't an appeal to to the, the American government over the next couple of years to, to fund it. And yeah. they would certainly cite the, mass, the massive um, interest of the public. Obama might do it just before he leaves office. 
Oh, one of those executive decisions. You know? And he'd have my eternal gratitude. Yeah. <laughs> I already love him, but yeah, yeah. No, that, 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 I hope that's so. the deal for me. He's doing all sorts of great things this last year, so maybe he'll just be like, yeah, fuck it. Mars can have a trillion dollars <laughs> or NASA for Mars. He's a secret, massive Mars fan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, he has he has increased the NASA budget, hasn't he? Or he's yeah, no, in, in terms of, of previous governments, he's he's done better than most, but it's still a very it's difficult really situation to be in. Like, I mean, yeah. if we had... It's funny, like, pe- people people compare Mars and the moon a lot. Obviously, they're, they're two very different challenges. But yeah. if you look at where we were um, back in the 50s and 60s mm. uh, in terms of getting to the moon and where we are now in getting to Mars, it's actually probably as big a challenge. Yeah. So the argument is it's also as achievable if yeah. we had the same level of, of budget and, and yeah, the finances. It's nowhere similar. We'll, we'll have nothing like that. No, yeah. we'll have a, a tiny fraction of that. But yeah. if we had the money behind it, yeah, it'd be... But then the other side of it then is there, there are people like, okay, Mars One might not be real as such, but people like Elon Musk challenging, which might, you know, a bit of competition would maybe speed it up a bit, you know? Yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a big advocate for, for people trying to think outside the box. And, and so are NASA. Like, NASA are happy for other organizations yeah. to... sure they're using SpaceX. So. Exactly, yeah. 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 Once once they can they can prove their reliability and once they they conform to at least a certain level of ethics, because there is international treaties of, of space law. Yeah. So they, they, once once organizations fall within that category, NASA are happy for other people to try and push, yeah. push the barriers. And someone like SpaceX, because they've proven time and again that they have the capability, they have the resources, then... Yeah. They get um, trusted just like any other organization. Yeah. Someone like, I guess, Mars One or, or any other organization that proposes things, they're always given a little bit of leeway at the start and and uh, at least the um, the benefit of the doubt to, to, to go out and prove that they can do some of the things they're trying to achieve. But um, after a couple of years, I think they have to at least come up with some of the goods and, and prove that they can... Yeah. They have the resources to, to do something. Yeah. But uh, after that, if they can't, then I think it's it's up to to them to leave it to other space organizations yeah i think musk has also said hasn't he that he, he plans to get there a good bit sooner than nasa seems to think it's possible yeah he's he's got more ambitious timelines but yeah. he's he's a little bit cautious about how he does it. like he, yeah, he, yeah he doesn't come out and say like um i'm definitely going to get here at this time no yeah. this place with this yeah. technology but with four people on a yeah exactly <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. He's, he's less specific he, he's yeah. he's a bit more cautious in terms of saying well we ha- we have this technology that can get yeah. us here we have the the dragon spacecraft yeah we have the 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 ability now to send people into space and leave them there a little bit longer than we did before but yeah. there's still issues to to figure out there's and also the amount of money he's going to be saving by just by landing the the rockets after they go up and all that kind of stuff that's really clever stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a visionary place. Like uh, mm. SpaceX, just they they actually do compliment NASA because yeah. they they push them, they they push each other. Yeah. Um. But I I still think if chips chips are down, the people most likely to get to Mars eventually will, will be NASA. Yeah. Oh yeah. That makes sense. Uh. So you've you've worked for NASA. Um. The is what's that like when you're a scientist? Is, is that is that like playing for Man United? That- <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a nice analogy um, <laughs> uh, yeah it's an interesting one because I think NASA is an organisation that, that does kind of transcend scientific boundaries and has a place in in almost in pop culture and folklore yeah, yeah. everyone can relate to it which, which is a strange thing because like most scientists who are in an area they, they will end up working with a big organisation that leads their area at some point so 
like if you um if you worked in like nanoscience in ireland you would end up probably working for someone like uh, cran the the national uh, center for nanoscience in ireland right and they were a massive body incredible organization and deserve a lot of respect yeah. but probably aren't as well known outside of um outside of the, the scientific field yeah so nasa if, if you work in astrophysics you work in space you probably will collaborate with them at some point you could well end up working for them but um while that's quite normal for a scientist in their field when someone outside the field hears about it they, they think of nasa quite differently I, I guess maybe the cern might be another one because cern yes, has yeah. over the, the last number of years managed to 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 get into the, the public consciousness as well yeah but really they're just the the organizations that you you work for if you're in that area i mean if you're a particle physicist working for cern at some point w- wouldn't be such a strange thing and yeah okay. likewise um like especially in, in trinity we're very lucky that a number of the scientists that work there have strong ties to yeah. to to nasa so in particular uh, professor peter gallagher worked for nasa for many years and uh, we're very lucky he came then to work at Trinity, but every year he's been there, he he keeps that those links up. So he'll send uh, postgraduate students or postdoctoral students over to NASA to to work with some of his colleagues over there, and that's that's how I went as well. I was uh, just lucky that uh, there was there was space for me, and I went over to work for them. Okay. Um, in terms of as an experience, yeah, like it's it's an incredible place to work, and it's it's inspirational, and it is exciting being there. The, the fact that it is NASA, but yeah. I guess some people are kind of surprised when I say it also convinced me that I didn't ever want to work there. Oh, really? Yeah, or or even like work in that in that area. And I guess it, it was brilliant in that way that it it gave, made me very clear about where I was going afterwards. Because mm-hmm. like if you're in astrophysics, you, you kind of have two two options if you're staying in the field. You you go into academia even deeper and, and try and become like a, a postdoctoral student or a postdoctoral fellow, research mm. fellow, or ultimately a, a professor in the university. Right. Or you, you go and work for a research organization like like ESA, the European Space Agency, yeah. or, or NASA. Yeah. But at NASA, it's it's a very different environment. Um, I think it's probably the place where I met the most, or the highest proportion of uh, depressed, divorced scientists. Really? Yeah. Uh, and I think the reason for that is because you go there because you love your research and it's your passion and what drives you. But like a lot of people think NASA must have a lot of money. They have a lot of, well, they don't they actually don't have a lot of money, but the money they do get from the government yeah. goes to the, um, the, the missions themselves yeah. and to the astronaut training program, yeah. all those kind of core uh, things. And then the scientific program, which is, is just as important, often has to rely on research grants. Mm. So a lot of the scientists that work at NASA, they don't actually get paid by the government. They get, they're, they're being paid in these short-term contracts right. from short-term research projects. Now, that's that's fine when you're you're young, and it, it suited me perfectly, and it's it's good for young scientists to, to experience that uh, challenge of going out, yeah. proving that your research is worthwhile, and getting funding. Mm-hmm. But as you get older, and as your responsibilities increase, it's it's a little bit difficult to, to still have that drive to to want to go out every two or three years and get your research funded or like in certain cases if you end up if you if you have a partner if you have a, a husband or you have a wife or you have children that are you're responsible for and you don't know in two years time that you'll still have work because you have to go yeah. out and win a contract that's that's a stressful environment yeah, to be in definitely. and a lot of people would would make fun of of us 
people working in universities where like I have my obligations as an assistant professor I have to teach and I have to do admin and stuff and yeah. research is only a small part of my um my my brief and it's uh well it's, it's probably the most important part but none of us ever get as much time as we want we all want to do right. more research but we have so many other commitments but yes i mean the the payoff for that is we have security and that, that's i mean that's it's it's a challenging environment to work in a university but it's that security makes makes all the difference yeah yeah it's similar in you know if, if you're a writer or something you know there's you can be writing your novels and stuff and you know you might it might do well when it's finished when it comes out in three years time or it might not so then some people take a job, you know, teaching, writing, and then they have less time to write, but they've got the security. You know, it's the same kind of thing, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, no needs way. must. Um, so your your uh, um, your thesis, your PhD thesis was... Oh, God. <laughs> I have that here. <laughs> you did do your homework. I can't read it. <laughs> yeah. E.g. Andromedae, a symbiotic system as an insight into red giant chromospheres. And other such tales. Yeah. And other such tales. <laughs> that was the exact uh, same as my one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that still your research then? Uh, uh, a, a little bit. And that's, that's a nice thing about university as well, that you can, you can change departments, you can change areas. So I actually changed faculty. I went from being in the faculty of engineering, maths and science, and specifically being in the, the school of physics, Mm-hmm. to the Faculty of Arts, Humanities and Social Science, to the School okay. of Education. Okay. But within that, I mean, w- I have different res- responsibilities in terms of uh, lecturing and in terms of, of admin, but really th- the research you, you do as a university academic is is up to you. Like, we do have this wonderful academic freedom where we can research whatever we're passionate about as long as it's um, it's getting published and as long as it's... Uh, at some level, getting some some attention, some research grants. All right. So, I mean, I concentrate a lot on science education and particularly just scientific literacy, the impact of science on society. But yeah. I tie that as much as I can into my earlier work in astrophysics. And my astrophysics research is still something I, I work away on, which, right. again, is another reason where, you know, there's, there's days where everyone has where we, we question, are we in the right job? Or yeah. when it's... Uh, uh, Thursday night and you're leaving the office at half three in the morning because <laughs> you have to finish your lectures for the next morning. Um, I'm, not, I'm not saying that I would do that. That's, that no, could of course be, not. No, no, no. no, that would never happen. My <laughs> lectures crazy. are always prepared in, well in advance. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it comes back to like the reason I'm in this job is because I love science, I love the research and the fact that a university like Trinity is, is willing to to support me and to yeah. to allow me to do whatever research I like. That's um, that's a massive thing. That That's why like I get up every day and I never dread going to work. Yeah, yeah. I see you as as one of the science communicators in Ireland. I've seen you talking a few times and things, and you you do get a point across very well. So is that something you see yourself as following, say, in the, the Brian Cox or Carl Sagan kind of footsteps? Um, it's yeah, on a different sort of scale, maybe because it's <laughs> Ireland. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Ireland has um, has an interesting uh, arena at the moment in terms of what is science, science communication, and I always panic a little bit when people refer to me as a science communicator because like I would never call myself a science communicator right, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if that's that's a role that I, I fully um have earned because like I guess the issue with science communication is that it's it's kind of got two two ways of, of being seen there's the the very public way that the likes of Brian Cox or um anyone in Ireland who, who goes out and, and and speaks about about science and tries to get the, the public interested mm. in it or mm. uh, but also science communication is a a very rich research area in itself and there, there's a lot of people who do a lot of research in this i mean in in, in ireland we have uh, in dcu they have a master's in science communication they have um some of the the top researchers in science communication in the world the likes of 
Brian Trench and, and Potter Murphy are are top of their field. Right. So I, I'm sometimes a little bit concerned about just the, the the branding of it because I mean sometimes we'd we'd call someone a, a science communicator, but maybe they don't they don't have any uh, interest in the research behind it. And it's it's important as well to 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 ensure that we apply the same academic rigor to everything we do. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I haven't fully embraced this title that sometimes people right. give me of, of a, a science communicator. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I understand where it's coming from and I, I fully believe in the importance of, of communicating science mm. and engaging the public with it. So I certainly won't be stopping anytime soon and, uh, we'll, we'll continue to, to speak about science whenever people yeah. while people will still listen to me which you know that, that could that yeah. could stop pretty soon as well they might get sick of hearing me same old, <laughs> same old jokes over and over again but um, <laughs> e- even if like I, I stop being like a, partic- a practitioner of of science communication i certainly won't stop uh researching it that's that's one of right. my core areas yeah i suppose nobody really well i don't know if, I, if this is right or not but i don't i don't see it as say carl sagan or, or brian cox or Neil deGrasse Tyson, these people really go out of their way to be science communicators, but maybe they just get asked back more often than other people. Yeah. And, and they're th- just good at it. I think that those three examples there, they're, they're three people who were very good scientists first and foremost. Yeah. And I think that that's my one, my one concern with, with the area of science communication. I, I think it's fascinating area. It's really interesting, exciting, but sometimes I think it can be a little bit dangerous for particularly young people if they're doing their, their degree or their, their masters or whatever, and they see this area of, of science communication and they mm. think, oh, well, I can do that. I can go off and be Carl Sagan or the, yeah. the Brian Cox or Neil deGrasse Tyson. But yeah. first and foremost, they were wonderful scientists. And that's yeah. what I always say to people at a young stage in their career. Make sure you're, you have your scientific credentials first and foremost. You right. can be a scientist who engages in good science communication and you should work in science communication throughout your your career like you should never get to a point where you think you can do it now it should yeah, be yeah, yeah. should be a continuous learning yeah. area and i think we can all do do more i think all of us across the board could could do more to improve as uh, people who communicate science but i just would worry sometimes that people yeah. think it's a career and like if you look at ireland i mean we, we don't even have a regular um science show on tv we've got the science squad which is run for i think three or four seasons now but that's i think one of the only regular yeah, yeah. science tv shows in terms of radio we have uh future proof on, on news talk which um i think is probably the only nationally broadcasted mm. radio show about science and then we have the likes of yourselves and other people who produce high quality science podcasts yeah and, and that's 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 where we're at i mean that's it's great to have that but if if we're talking about it for a career for young people i mean there there aren't a whole lot of jobs as yeah. inverted commas science communicators yeah even even that like you said you know because we're our website has a science section and we want to try and do like our podcast isn't always science it's it's you know it's just talking to inter- interesting people i suppose with any section of the website um but i'd love to have more more scientists on it but it's kind of hard to, to know who to even invite you know or who to approach in ireland like you know um so it'd be good if we had more people like you who were kind of talking about stuff we had david moore on do you know him the astronomy ireland yes yeah um I'm not, i don't think i'm not sure he's a scientist as such is he? he's just a big astronomy fan he uh-huh. is a big astronomy fan yeah and i mean he, he has done probably more than anyone for raising awareness about uh, oh yeah astronomy but it's, it, it's an interesting his, his one voice is ubiquitous with like solar eclipses and <laughs> exactly <laughs> he's on like the radio all the time exactly and he does yeah. he does great work but i think like an important thing for for the Irish media and for us in general is that I mean like it's great to have someone like David Moore but he isn't he isn't the only person and I think sometimes there's a little bit of um, um, 
not not laziness is the wrong word, but but sometimes we just kind of go with, with what yeah. we know. We think, oh, there's a, a story about um, like a solar eclipse. Yeah. We'll, we'll go to David Moore because yeah. he's the astronomy guy. And, and it's great to have him. But I mean, someone like... It might be a saturation then of the one person kind of thing. Yeah, and the likes of, of uh, Peter Galler in, in Trinity. I mean, he's, he's worked for NASA and now is... Um, uh, like one of the few people in, in Ireland who gathers scientific data from solar eclipses and publishes on it. So he's like a, okay. he, he would be a, a scientific expert on it. And I mean, Peter is probably not the best example because he does actually do quite a lot of media. Like he's one of the the, right. the, the, the best people in Ireland in terms of being a scientist who right. engages the media. But for other areas, sometimes we, we'll go with the person who we associate with that area, even if there might not be an expert. Yeah. And like it happens with me as well. Like sometimes people, people will ask me to speak about, um, about Mars and I'll say yeah I'm happy to like I'm happy to to give my scientific yeah. uh, opinion on it but if it's something specifically about Mars maybe someone like Professor Mary Burke Trinity College she's a, a geologist whose research area for for years has been the uh, the Martian surface and comparing it to the the surface on Earth and and learning what we can about the the difference between the two so right. I mean, she's she's a a world leader in Martian surfaces so yeah, yeah. sometimes I feel it's a bit rich if I'm on RTE and I'm talking about um, the the structure of the Martian atmosphere and, yeah. and how it impacts on on the the surface when there's like a world renowned expert <laughs> who who could speak about it. But then so again, sitting in the cubicle next year. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and Mary, Mary does does get called sometimes. But yeah, I, th- I think it's it's a responsibility on, on both parts. I mean, the Irish media could could probably look a little harder sometimes for mm. the right expert. But also, it, it's down to us. It's down to like people like me saying to her, Mary Burke is there. She's the expert. She's the person you should be speaking to. Or um, instead of getting like someone to speak about astronomy generally, you can get here's an astrophysicist in Trinity who is researching that area. Yeah. Um, and then it's up to the scientists themselves to be comfortable with with engaging with the media. So if you're looking for a few scientists for podcasts, I'll, I'll give you a few names. Cool, great. <laughs> um, that sounds good. As, yeah, because you, you're you're obviously asked about Mars all the time now because that's how you, I suppose a lot of people came to know you at that time when you spoke out. Um, but really, your your main research is, is the sun, is it? Uh, no, although I, I did when I was in NASA. That's that's the area I was working on. But okay, um, no, we ha- we have definitely. Uh, if someone asked me to speak about the sun, I would be very keen for them to to go to someone like Peter Gallagher because okay. he's the the world leader in, in solar physics. Okay. Um, I mean, uh, like sometimes I fill in for Peter if if he, he's away or he's at a conference or right. he's working. But uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, we we have uh, people in that area. My, my uh, thesis title there which is impenetrable uh, uh, was, was E.G. Andromeda the <laughs> symbiotic system oh, as an insight again. into the red giant chromospheres and other tales yeah yeah uh, <laughs> my collected short stories um, <laughs> so yeah my area is is stellar physics as opposed to solar physics so okay. I mean for most people that, that's not a major distinction but when it comes down to the research itself I'm happy to talk about the evolution of, of stars in general okay. and, and how they get to in particular the red giant phase when they're, when okay. they're, when they're dying stars yeah, yeah. and I'm happy to talk about that's uh, the one that kills you basically yeah yeah, yeah. So, and I'm, I'll, I'll gladly talk about that to anyone that'll listen okay. but in terms of the, the the day-to-day what the sun is doing and, and yeah. sunspots and solar flares we yeah. have people who are far more qualified in, in that's peter gallagher yep okay uh how many years do we have until the red giant phase? <laughs> uh we have a couple of billion yeah uh, a couple so, billion. okay uh, about, about five billion five and a half billion before we need to start worrying and then um th- yeah this is a question i'm i've got a little bit cost about over the years because one of the reasons why i'm not allowed to talk to kids anymore uh, <laughs> <laughs> give us some context for that. <laughs> uh, is due- end the podcast there <laughs> <laughs> uh due to be due to the fact that i'm just not very good at um changing the way i talk about science i kind of have one okay. one way that i speak i get so excited about science that i don't have that skill that some people have where they 
can speak to kids. Uh, I just have a way of, like, I speak about science. I love speaking about it yeah. and I get very excited and I try and make it clear in my head and hope that that's, that's clear for other people. Mm. Uh, but what, and I mean, that, that generally works out. Like when I'm talking to young people, I think they, they like the honesty. I talk about it, but I've learned that if you're in a primary school and one of the, the children asks you um, how, how the earth will end, uh, you, you probably shouldn't give them a blow-by-blow account of how the, <laughs> the sun will eventually become a red giant and expand outwards and burn all life off the surface of the earth before destroying the planet yeah. and restoring us back to the interstellar medium from whence we came. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, uh, some, some children like that. You but had to learn that by experience. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you didn't just know that. After, yeah, after the third uh, child crying and after the, the third parent worrying about their child having existential crisis, they just, they just stop sending me. They just, they just realize that there's other scientists who are good at that kind of thing and I'm not one of them, so. right. Right, okay, um, but you do have a sh- uh, you did a show with uh, a friend of yours, um, a kind of science show. Um, we what was did that again the the Rony and Joe science yes, show. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, well done for coming across that. That's, yeah, I found no that one ever asked me about that. Amazing. <laughs> it seems fun. I it, saw a video. Really? Did yeah. so? Oh, cool. Well, it was fun. Uh, yeah. it, it is fun. But that's actually how this situation came about. That um, um, science shows are a thing that happen on occasion. Uh, if you've never seen one, it's kind of like like a magic show where you're trying to impress kids yeah. uh, with science tricks instead of magic magic tricks. And yeah. I absolutely detest them uh, <laughs> because I remember like seeing them as, as a child and just thinking, this is nonsense. Like I, I feel like they're being condescending. They're talking down to me because I'm a child right. and they're trying to make it seem like it's really cool and exciting. Yeah. Uh, and I was probably like, like, again, my big mouth got me in trouble. I was spoke quite vocally about how the, the standard of science shows we have isn't good enough. Now, there's a couple that people do in Ireland that are good, but in general, the standard is pretty poor. Right. Uh, and I, in particular, I said it's like fair enough. You don't always need a scientist to be the one up on stage doing the show, but you should have active scientists involved at some point in yeah. either the research or the production. Yeah. Whereas a lot of the science shows don't have any scientists involved. There's one I met. I'm not going to name the institution in Ireland, but the um, the regular person doing the show uh, had never studied science. I think he started a poetry degree or English degree or something and became a pastor, and they they employed him to do science shows because he could project his voice, oh, which I God. don't think is a good enough criteria to no. be in that position where you're in front of thousands of children over, well, certainly hundreds of children, thousands of children across a couple of weeks yeah. and influencing their opinion on science. So because of that, uh, I think people got sick of my rants about it and they said, all right, you, you, you do, do it. it. <laughs> yeah. So which, yeah, I should have should have seen coming. So we came up with this show, uh, myself and my, my friend, uh, Ronan Cullen. Dr. Ronan Cullen, he's, a, he's a, a, a chemist and also one of my best friends, which was pivotal. The only reason I was, I was going to do this is if I could at least be up on stage with someone who um, I trusted and who uh, I wouldn't feel bad about if it all went terribly wrong. Right. Um, and also he's, his expertise is that he's, he builds things in the lab. I mean, he does mm. chemical experiments all the time. His understanding of chemicals and mm. explosions and fire is yeah. far superior than mine. <laughs> but we put together a show that we felt was at least accurate and honest. Yeah. So whenever we do a show, we explain very clearly why we're scientists, why we like it, what we do. I mean, we still have some of the explosions and fireballs and stuff, but it's the same explosion fireballs that we would have in the lab when we're messing around. Yeah. Um, so... <laughs> When, How often does that happen? As you do. <laughs> more often than you think. Like, um, I mean, Ronnie's a chemist. He's, he's able to just like put together beautiful colored fireballs at will. So, I mean, if you can do that, you're going to do it in the lab. You've got to test these things. Yeah, yeah. You should always have it up a sleeve. Just like, 
bring it out of parties he does yeah yeah, yeah. He goes, okay. at, at parties t- tours the lab uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. um but it's it's just a way of um being honest i think that that's important so you, you can still try and impress people and inspire them but it should also include something about cur- current contemporary research so whenever we do a science show we also explain this is the state of the field at the moment like this isn't a science trick that has been done for 20 years as you've all seen before yeah. we do this because we want to show you that uh, this is an interesting property of superconductors which right. conduct energy so electricity so well that if we found a way to to make them work at room temperature we'd solve the world's energy crisis and that's something that you as young people should be aspiring to as scientists yeah. um so yeah it does look like a lot of fun but i'd like to think that there is there's some important educational underpinnings as yeah, well yeah yeah i just saw a short video which was i think the fun bits <laughs> yeah well it, it is a lot of fun as well yeah. I mean, uh, we, we get into trouble for some of the stuff we do we, we did um exploding 500 ping pong balls out of a, a bin. I saw a that bin. One. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that that's a lot of fun. But also yeah, it's a, that is a, lot of fun. a good proxy for the expanding universe and how stars move away from each other. The, well, yeah. it was the, that one was a little bit tenuous. We, we really just wanted to see <laughs> if we could blow it up. Uh, I should say, actually, for that one, um, I mean, most of, of the production from that show came from um, a scientist called Sarah Louise Ball, who's uh, she's a wonderful physicist as well. But she's actually got a, a great um, way of... of seeing how things will will look and, and producing things that look great so um she's actually you, you probably see her in the, in the weeks ahead i think she's on a, a new science show on on rt um called insiders so it's it's a science show for young people but yeah. um they, they they made the the very good step now sometimes i criticize rt but that's rare because i actually think they do a lot of of wonderful work and they went out and got an, an active scientist for for the show so yeah, yeah. she does the research as well as presenting the show which i, I think saw is her talking on something that you were also talking on um she yeah, she has been at um it could have been festival curiosity or yeah or an event yeah, around then yeah um but yeah i mean she 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 was integral to the likes of the roni and joe show because right. myself and roni are happy to to do science talk about science but we're also very difficult to get to stay on track whenever the two of us are together because we'll just be Messing. blowing fireball at each other or trying to <laughs> kick a football around the stage. So uh, it's important to have someone like her who actually sees the, the bigger okay. picture. Yeah, is it like trying to, if you, if you think of something you want to explain to kids or something and then trying to find a way to demonstrate it on stage? So it's probably a hard enough thing, but that's what she's good at, is it? Yeah, no, she's, she's brilliant at that. Like Roni and I will come up with outside the box things that may or may not work and she kind of has the vision for okay. this this is what it needs this is practical this is feasible and also like even just things like scripting like trying to get myself and Ronnie to stay to it stay to a script is yeah. almost impossible but she um she can crack the whip when she needs to all right cool um so i, I want to go back to mars <laughs> <laughs> in every when, sense <laughs> when you were watching um the martian was there any did you, did you ever think that you were going to be going to Mars? Did you, but did you think when you were watching the Martian that could have been me? No, no. You never I, ever thought you were going there? No. Right. Um, Even when you signed up? Yeah, but that's not to say... I mean, that that might seem a little bit flippant for me to just say, no, I, I never thought about it. I mean, like, I didn't I didn't make that decision to volunteer for Mars 1 lightly. I made that decision based on if, if it was possible, if even in just a hypothetical sense this could happen, mm. then would I go... Uh, yes is always the answer and it's, it's not a, a difficult question because like leaving things behind is, is difficult for anyone but when you're going to do something that's that's a core area of your your whole research your whole career your, your life yeah. then being a pioneer like that if called upon like I, I wouldn't even think that i have a decision it's it's if i was asked to do that that's a responsibility i have to my to my area to my discipline that oh. yes i would do that in a heartbeat but also any scientist who is looking at it realize that this 
this is a, a, an incredible challenge we're up against. And unless the money behind space exploration changes yeah. drastically in the years ahead, then it's not happening anytime soon. Yeah. So there was no point where I thought I, I would I would be going anywhere. Um, right. And I think like I'd like to think I was I was quite open and honest with that. Like I did say that all along. It was often lost in the fact that. Oh wait! You've signed up for a one mission yeah, to Mars. Yeah. This guy's going to Mars. Yeah, yeah. And then I often say, "What? I didn't actually say that. I mean, I, I said that yeah. I've signed up for it because I think it's a wonderful idea and I think it's good to to investigate the possibilities of it. Mm. And if it did happen, I would go. But it's it's a long way off. It's yeah. it's it's probably not going to happen anytime soon. Yeah. But I, it's I it's a, it's it's a weird thing with the Martian where people people go see it and they think they, they, a lot of people said to me, "Oh, I, I imagine you." being there. Yeah. Uh, whereas <laughs> when I was watching it, I didn't imagine myself being there at all. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. It's um. There was a worrying amount of people. Yeah, who thought it was a true story. Thought to, yeah, saw yeah. that and something. Buzzfeed. Oh no! Yeah, oh, lots oh. of people thought it was true. Oh god! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. yeah. Well, that's just ruined my day. That's the world we live in, I suppose. They're like, how did Matt Damon get back in time to promote the movie? <laughs> <laughs> didn't, that didn't happen. No, I didn't think that was <laughs> happen, but it, but a lot of people did think this is based on a true story. Yeah, you know. So. Well, that's the downside. I mean, that yeah. just shows the, the the challenge we have ahead of ourselves. Uh, no, I think I think science communication is is really good, and I don't think. Um, that when people don't know something that they should be blamed for that. I think I think people should go out and find out for themselves. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, like, whenever I come up against something like that where I feel I have a duty to to um, uh, give a, a scientific opinion on it and yeah. maybe show people that there are um, good evidence to prove that things like yeah. a mission to Mars hasn't happened, but the mission to the moon did happen. Yes, um, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, sometimes I just, I do despair and I kind of give up. Like, a lot of the time... It, if I'm if I'm out and it's uh, just just too too late at night for me to, to to want to engage in a long discussion, and someone hears I do astrophysics and they ask me what star what star sign they are, I mean there comes a point where <laughs> yeah. I just I just say Gemini, and oh, really? <laughs> and if they are Gemini, then yeah, once in twelve I'm right, and yeah. they think I'm a wizard. And <laughs> it's and that that makes it all worthwhile. Yeah. But yeah, I mean sometimes <clears> just. You 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 despair because you think you, you work so hard to to try mm. and hope that everyone appreciates uh, scientific progress and and our understanding of the universe yeah. uh, as much as as you and your colleagues do. But yeah, sometimes they'll just believe that you know dinosaurs and humans live together. And yeah, yeah. It must be irritating as well. Like a lot of conspiracy theories around yeah. the moon landing and all that kind of stuff. You know. Oh, look, I'm far from a scientist, but even if I see a moon hoax. The moon landing hoax I still have to get on it and be like shut up yeah yeah because yeah. it's annoying like you know yeah um, and same with creationist theory stuff you know yeah it's it's like again it, I, I don't think we've we've fully cracked what the best way to do that is and that, I think that's that's yeah. an issue for science communication engagement of, of science and society like the likes of say Richard Dawkins is very outspoken when mm. it comes to um the science versus religion debate yeah. but I'm not always sure if his style is is the, the best way like he, he'll he'll go uh, quite direct and yeah. and almost ridicule people for it, which I, I don't know if that's that's always the most um, yeah. structured supporting w- thing you can do. I think sometimes it's but he has done great things for it as well. He has as well. Yeah, I, I know he, he certainly has 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 helped certain areas, but mm. I think there's scope as well for people to be a little bit more imaginative about how they they deal with it. Um, yeah, like I'm I'm not very good at 
at being confrontational when it comes to that kind of stuff like i'll i'll try and be as uh try as careful as i can to just support my ideas as an alternative and hope mm. that i give enough evidence and support that they they might choose to, to to respect the opinion i'm putting forth as well but i think like there's there's different ways around it um, yeah. i think if you look at someone especially in ireland mm. the likes of um of dr david McKeown in in ucd he's a uh famous rocket scientist ucd who I sometimes get mistaken for and he sometimes gets mistaken for me. Oh, really? Sometimes I'm asked to talk about rockets and sometimes he's asked to talk about Mars. Oh. <laughs> uh, we just look the same and sound the same, uh, but uh, we are actually different people. Okay. Uh, but I think he's, he's probably... You heard it here first. Different people. Different people. There are two of us. <laughs> he's actually, the, I, I, I think, the, the go-to person in Ireland for, for how to, to deal with some of that. Um, like if you're confronted with an ignorance around science, he's just one of the most entertaining and funny scientists okay. we have. Engineer, he's technically an engineer, but also a scientist. I mean, right. we're all the same. Uh, but he just has that brilliant way of, you know, putting people in their place, putting them down, but doing it in a way that's so funny that we can all enjoy it. Okay. And I'm a big fan of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think Stephen Fry is great. Stephen Fry, obviously, is, he's not a scientist either, but he's great at that as well. And he's a great science communicator. I think, he is, yeah. Without being a scientist. Um but he's, he can be pretty firm as well when coming up against a creationist or something. Yeah. But he's th- funny about it. Yeah. And it's, it's something I, I think I, I, I would love to, to learn how to do or be able to do. Yeah. But I'm just, uh, I don't know, I, I, I'm more comfortable making myself the butt of the joke because that way, like, yeah. I don't care. I don't have feelings. I'm not going to yeah, get, yeah. get upset by anything. But I, I just worry about the, the damage I could do if I was to uh, <laughs> to ridicule someone. So, um, yeah, I, I, it's, it's, it's something we haven't cracked yet. I mean, we, we try and put science education out there and, and hope that people engage with it and hope that the younger generations have enough scientific literacy that they can make an informed decision that yeah. if they're challenged on something like climate change or evolution they'll weigh up the evidence before they decide in their opinion and that's i think that's all we can ask for yeah that, that reminds me of a quote of yours that i actually wrote down um Uh-oh. about uh, just about exactly that about um how y- you would hate to do anything to damage science or science communication or how is it's, if people lose faith in NASA and possibly even in scientists, then that's the polar opposite of what I'm about. If I was somehow linked to something that could do damage to the public perception of science, that's my nightmare situation. Yeah, and that that came out because of my um, my comments on on Mars One as an organization. I think mm. I think because I guess the the credibility of Mars One was called into question, and there was much more scrutiny, which I think is actually a good thing for them. I think if if there's that much scrutiny and they still managed to come out and uh, and prove that they can do it and, yeah. and secure the funding, develop the resources, that'd be great. I think at the moment it's, it's looking probably a little unlikely that they would do that, but I would love them to prove me wrong. But I think around that time, a lot of people thought that, you know, that was my goal. I wanted to go out and, and, and hurt them and, yeah. and get them a bad reputation. But like that's, I don't know enough about them to, to, to have enough evidence to do that. Yeah. All I know about them is... is Which what, is crazy, since you got to the last hundred. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was part of my argument that yeah. I, I think we should just we should hold them up to scrutiny like we would any other organization. We, you have to be, yeah. We've given them a few years and now they have to, to show us what mm. they can do. They have to show us their evidence. Yeah. Uh, but I, was, I, wasn't, I wasn't trying to hurt them and um, I, I, I wouldn't put down anyone. Like I'm, 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 I would hope that I would just try and get people to, to question things and to be more curious about the, uh, the underlying structures behind an organization like we, we can all give an organi- organization credit for trying to do something new and innov- mm-hmm. innovative and being brave but until they they prove they, they can do it then we have to just uh, tread tread carefully so yeah I, I, I that is actually my nightmare scenario is that mm. i would somehow 
damage uh, the public perception of science. Yeah. Um, and if that would happen and I did damage, then I think that's the time where I, I leave it to other people and I go back into the lab and just work away for the rest of my career and yeah, yeah. Don't, don't speak publicly. Yeah. What, what do you think? How damaging do you think it is when <clears throat> a scientist does something that's kind of aside from science? Like, you know... Um, Oh, who was it? Was it James Watson? The uh, Oof, yeah, yeah. Um, well, it, it, it basically seemed a bit racist. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, I think I think it's 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 just such a an awful area to be in where you have this place in society where you've won a Nobel Prize, you're up on a pedestal, and I think mm. obviously Watson is an incredible scientist. He made an incredible contribution to our discipline. Yeah. But I think that doesn't excuse him from failing down on some of the 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 basic rights of, oh, of yeah, human beings. No, it so, definitely doesn't excuse him, but does it damage oh, his, does it, his it, science and science in general? Yeah, well, I mean, <clears throat> it, it. I mean, he's he's at the end of his career, so it's not as as important. Like hmm. he he shouldn't be given positions of power. He shouldn't he should he shouldn't be allowed um, lecture or or educate people of society when he's made clear that he he doesn't have a view of equality he, does, he doesn't see all human beings as being equal right. so i i think you, you you can't like a university can't employ someone like that yeah um and the same i guess with it's it's a similar idea that maybe not quite as drastic as as watson but tim hunt's i mean he, he's also a nobel laureate who sh- should know better and then had his comments so what's the tim hunt one tim hunt uh was it, it it's not a year ago yet maybe it was earlier this year it seems it seems like ages ago no it was this year actually um was it i think before the summer uh, of this year, he he was speaking at a conference in in South Korea and was asked about um, yeah it was actually a conference about like uh, gender diversity and, yeah, and like yeah, yeah. The, the 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 obstacles and the the challenges and mm. the, the the benefits and he he made a couple of of jokes which you know like that's on one level I can relate to it because I say I say terrible things but I like to think if I was in his position where I'm a very well respected Nobel laureate that I would be a little bit cautious about those type of comments yes. um whether he believes them or not if if he does believe them then like watson he shouldn't be he shouldn't have a position if, if he thinks that somehow women working with men in a lab is bad for science then he, unfortunately that's that's something that he, he is isn't going to tally with what you your, your responsibilities as a university and you, you yeah. can't be employed by university um and uh, yeah like he he got a lot of attention for that and there were, it, it became an interesting debate then because i mean he was he, he lost his, his his job because of it yeah and some people are saying oh people are overreacting he, he made a joke and yeah. this kind of trial by by twitter yeah maybe yeah. isn't the the best route to go down either and I, I don't think i don't think it is like i think it's a lot of people on twitter just because they create a lot of noise doesn't mean that that's no that's the answer but they nearly always take everything out of context as well yeah yeah which but is the problem with richard dawkins on twitter like Sometimes he's making a good point, but the context just sounds terrible on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but I think a good a good side to that uh, whole area is that at least now they're held accountable. Like I'm not oh, sure yeah, if this yeah. if this trial by Twitter is is the, is the right thing to do, but at least now they they don't get away with it. Like we know mm. we, we at least live in a society now where even someone like a Nobel laureate, if they make comments like that that are irresponsible and reckless, then they will be held accountable. Yeah, yeah, that's probably a good thing. <laughs> yeah until until it comes to the point where like i make a terrible joke and, yeah yeah, then... <laughs> yeah when you're a Nobel laureate for now you can do whatever you want <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for now you can do whatever you want <laughs> um 
just I wanted to ask you just about one more thing which you may know nothing about but um, it's actually kind of a two part question but the, the James, Spa- James Webb uh, Space Telescope um, they're obviously kind of building that at the moment in, in Goddard is it where yep. you were yep um, how exciting is that that's bigger than Hubble is it uh, yeah and uh, um, I should know something about this because it's uh, it kind of comes directly from, from my field I have mixed feelings on this oh, right. uh, on, one, on one hand the James Webb Space Telescope is an incredible piece of technology and okay. it's going to be a wonderful addition to, to our space observatories. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I can't wait. It's very exciting. It's going to tell us things about the universe that we didn't know before. Right. On a more personal level, um, it's also kind of heartbreaking for me because... It should be called the Joseph Roach Space <laughs> Telescope. <laughs> no telescope will ever be called that. It'll be like a child's toy or something. Um, no, the reason it's upsetting is because I, I work so closely with the Hubble Space Telescope. So the Hubble Space Telescope was, uh, was what my PhD used. Uh, okay. And I mean, when I started my PhD, initially I was supposed to be using an instrument called the, the FUSE uh, telescope, the, the Far Ultraviolet Spectroscopic Explorer. Uh, it's a good thing these, have, these things have acronyms. Um, <laughs> yeah. But FUSE was supposed to be what I was going to use to, to look at these red giant stars. And then two weeks before my, my PhD started, it blew up. Well, it didn't quite blow up, but it, it, it stopped working. It, it, right. it failed and it, it's never going to be used again. It's space junk now. So to, to do the type of research I wanted to do, which involved looking at the ultraviolet light from stars, right. now, that sounds straightforward, but actually if you think of it on Earth, we, we encounter ultraviolet light through um, the likes of sunburn. Ultraviolet light for humans is a little bit dangerous, yeah. but thankfully we have an atmosphere on Earth that blocks most of it out, so we don't have to worry about it as much. Unfortunately, when it comes to understanding the interesting uh, physics of stars, we want to measure that ultraviolet light and and, um, analyse it the same way we would Mm. any other type of light. But you can't do that from Earth. You can't look at ultraviolet light from stars because our atmosphere blocks it out. Which means the only way you can do it is if you have an instrument above the atmosphere. And when Fuse blew up, the only instrument left that we have... Um, as humankind looking at ultraviolet light from stars is Hubble and it's brilliant and it's far exceeded its its lifetime and it's a pillar in our scientific community but it's only got a couple of years left it's if it gets to 2018 2019 we'll be doing well and there's no natural successor to it the James Webb Space Telescope is the the kind of public successor to it and it will still provide those wonderful uh, visible visual images that that we know and love from Hubble James Webb will also give us the infrared images, which is a new area that's that's where all the biggest discoveries are going to come from. Because if you can study in the infrared, it means you can see through the dust that shrouds parts of the universe. So right. that's very exciting. But just because they were trying to put in so much technology there, they couldn't put in ultraviolet capability, which uh. means when Hubble's gone, that whole area of research is is gone. So the James Webb one isn't going to be in orbit as well? It, sorry, oh, it, it, will, oh, okay. it will be in orbit, but... It uh, it just doesn't have the okay. the instruments on it okay. to to measure ultraviolet light. So it'll do visible, it'll do infrared, but once Hubble goes, it's it's gone. All oh, right. So it's probably a good thing as well that I have like other research areas as well because uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no one will be able to get any new data anymore. Um. So it, it'll probably just break. It, it, they thought it would kind of not break, but it would not be useful this far. Uh, they thought it had a kind of shelf life, didn't they, or something? Yeah. Well, the the great thing about Hubble was it was just so such a ballsy idea like the, yeah, yeah. it's it's to date the only serviceable observatory we've we, we've built we put it in orbit and we had uh five missions where we sent up astronauts to actually capture it fix it put in new things uh, it's lucky it was it was designed like that because when it went up initially it, it didn't work at all due to a 
uh, a small error in the, the the mirror itself. Yeah, yeah. So um, the first servicing mission, they were actually able to replace the, the well, they were able to, to to change it such that the the, the mirror would work. Yeah. Um, and they subsequently over the years have had five missions where they've they've put in new instruments, they replaced old instruments, replaced things that break, but. Um, the last the last mission that they they had to Hubble is is the last one. It's it's been serviced for the last time. So now we're just playing the waiting game. When things start failing on it, they won't be fixed anymore. So oh, no. okay. it's um yeah it's it's sad, but you know at least at least we have something that that will replace some of its capability in, in the yeah. James Webb Space Telescope. Maybe they'll make another one then at some point. Hopefully, uh, this is something that I probably maybe should understand, but I don't really. Um, that so that's in orbit around the Earth. So it's going around like ten thousand miles an hour or something. Uh, so well, it d- depends. Some of them are at different right. different distances above the Earth. Some of them, um, yeah. Actually, that's an interesting thing because it, it came up recently with the I don't know if you know the the, the Voyager spacecraft was yeah. was a probe that was sent out to the edge of the solar system, and it's um, it, it's got this message from from the, Earth, gold, the golden record, the gold record exactly. Yeah. But recently there was a project to to update uh, update that to have a more current message from earth golden mp3 player a go- yeah yeah a golden floppy disk <laughs> no alien would know what to do with this um but yeah they they decided that instead of like sending in a probe it'd be interesting to to put it on a satellite orbiting above the earth and it actually there wasn't it wasn't like a nasa initiative and this is actually i think an arts funded project where they, they decided what? that they might be able to put a satellite up yeah. and have a message from Earth on it, like pictures and and uh, oh, okay. videos and things from Earth. But the idea was that they put it up, have it orbit around the Earth, and put it in such a secure orbit that it would last long after, say, or, or life on Earth might might die out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, if maybe in um, millions of years, if if someone were, was to discover the Earth and find that there's no life on it, but there was a satellite orbiting it, they they could at least find out what happened here imagine how weird that would be yeah yeah imagine if you went to mars or something and there's no life whatsoever but there's a satellite it's that satellite we didn't put there yeah exactly <laughs> but but it, it brought up that whole area of like how how fast do they does it need to move at what distance yeah, yeah. to because to, like a lot of satellites will decay naturally they'll they'll just be over time they'll yeah. have slight um slight wobbles or whatever that cause it to 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 decay in orbit yeah and i, I like th- this one I, I haven't found a con- conclusive answer on it but i think that satellite will will face that as well. I think like it's uh, the, the the people behind it seem to say that it's it's there forever, it's permanent. But yeah. I don't know. I I don't know if anything is kind of that level of permanency. Yeah, I don't think anything is permanent anyway. Yeah. Um, but I suppose that's that's fascinating. My question is um, about things like that and the telescope. How how does it how does it focus on an area like how does it when it's flying around really fast? How does it you know pick over there? You know, the way, like it gives us that, that image of the deep space with all the galaxies. What's that picture called again? Uh, the, oh God, the ultra deep field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How does that, how does that happen? Yeah, the the satellites themselves are, they're, they're just these remarkable pieces of technology. For the likes of Hubble, um, it's got three gyroscopes that help it uh, always find its position. So right. um, what, what it would do is um, it has a lot of data on star positions. So it uses the stars rather than anything on Earth to always find its position. So right. it, it knows uh, where the stars are. It picks out a couple of the stars, uses that to triangulate its position. So it knows exactly where it is at all times. Okay. And therefore, if you send up a target and say, OK, Hubble, you need to look over here. We're going to look very deeply into space. And that's going to be our ultra deep, deep field image. It then like calculates its position from relative to the stars, finds out where it is, and then points in that direction. Yeah. Um 
and it only can point in that direction for as long as it's in orbit because um once it goes around the other side of the earth it'll lose sight of that yeah so yeah it is it's a it's a whole area of like satellite positioning and and that's why like even when you're a scientist and you want to use a hubble space telescope to observe a, a star you have to go through a lot of uh, simula- simulations where yeah. you see can it look at that star for long enough that you get a good image uh, before it loses sight of it or sometimes you have to look is the star too bright you have to do calculations to see if, if you look at a star that's too bright it'll burn out the the uh, the detectors on on yeah. the, the spacecraft which if you did that like you'd, you'd be pretty pretty much in trouble with the scientific community if you're the one who yeah. breaks the telescope yeah yeah so, not um, cool <laughs> it, there's, a, there's a lot goes into it it's not just a question of like point here um, yeah so for the deep space one it obviously looked at that for kind of a long time wasn't it it was it was a, i can't remember i remember reading about it a while ago but I can't yeah I've, i've a feeling that they they uh, compressed lots of lots of images yeah o- oh, over yeah. time so as it was re- every time it goes by for a minute it takes a minute it observed the same goes, thing yeah okay. o- over time and then just b- built up the, the picture yeah, from yeah, that yeah okay so if you wanted to actually look at something and you wanted to say, okay, Hubble, I want to look at this particular star, does that have to go through different channels of people who okay it and say, yeah, you're allowed to do that for research? Like you were saying, yeah. someone gets their hand on it and points it at, you know, the sun and burns it out. You know what I mean? Like, does it actually have to be okayed by, I don't know, higher ups? In oh, yeah, regard? yeah. So, so they have they have the team that, that, that manages it. Yeah. Uh, and they, they probably w- would spot something like if it's going to point at a star that would burn it out. But, um, and any scientist that wants to do anything like for my for my PhD it was uh, I think one in four one in five scientific proposals got accepted so you'd right. have all the scientists propose a target and say look if you look at these stars for this amount of time we reckon we'll be able to to observe this phenomenon mm. uh, we'll then generate models of our own and compare it and we think from that we should be able to learn some interesting science it, it's always that balance of like you want to say what you think you'll be able to find, but you don't want to say this is what we'll find yeah, because then what's the point of doing it? Yeah, yeah. So you have to try and convince them that it's it's worthwhile. It'll give us something new. Yeah. And then, yeah, if if they if they like it and they agree to it, uh, then you have to go through the, the procedure to make sure that it's it's actually doable and that you don't break anything and that mm-hmm. it'll work. And then uh, it go, it's built into a schedule. So then the the, the, the team behind Hubble will will piece it together and find what's the most efficient way of observing all the targets that. Yeah. At, at what times and then they observe it and then they make it available to you online you have you have the the, yeah. the data available to on your online oh. and it's proprietary data for six months so you have six months once the data goes into the the archive for you to analyze it do whatever you want with it and get your publications out if you, if you found something new and after six months it becomes publicly accessible mm. uh, which i think is a, is a fair system like six months yeah. is probably long enough for you to do something right whatever you got to do and then yeah. like obviously it all should be publicly accessible yeah it gives you at least a six-month head start, if not. Yeah. yeah. Now, there's there's one other uh, way of proposing something, which is the uh, director's time, which is a certain amount of time that's built into Hubble's schedule, yeah. where if something comes up where you think, oh, God, like a, a supernova has gone off yeah. and we need to observe this at this time, yeah. you can write like a very short proposal and then they they'll they might just add that in and say, okay, that that's actually a good point. Okay. We, we have an opportunity here. We need to act fast. Would that not be too bright? Uh, if it's well, far enough away. If it's far enough away, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. Interesting. What are the space uh, programs that most excite you at the moment of the new things? Um, well, yeah, I mean, like the the James Webb is exciting, but also heartbreaking because it's, yeah. it reminds me that Hubble is, is going. I mean, Hubble is still the thing that excites me most. And okay. that's probably says a lot about uh, who I am and 
uh, no one should be that excited by <laughs> no one should love a space telescope that much that's uh, pretty cool yeah yeah and it's because like I, I can't develop feelings for humans so I should be allowed to <laughs> love an inanimate object floating above atmosphere um, I think I mean the, the big area at the moment like solar physics obviously is 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 massive and having um, having a, a big solar research group in Ireland is is key to that like if if we get the funding the likes of uh, I don't know if you've heard of the the idea for LOFAR but the, the low uh, frequency array is um, is radio astronomy and radio astronomy is interesting because you can do it from Earth. You don't need to be in space. You can do ground-based radio astronomy. Mm-hmm. But also the way we think of um, a dish in terms of radio astronomy is very different. Like we think of like a telescope or um, or a, a satellite dish as like gathering information, and you can only gather information from what's inside the the mirror, what's inside the mm-hmm. the, the lens or the dish. But with radio astronomy, you can actually it's almost like you can take parts of that dish and spread it out and have lots of holes in the middle oh, okay. and still be able to, to, to measure things. Right. And your, your ability to do radio astronomy increases, uh, the, the science you can do increases, the bigger that, that so-called dish is. Okay. So what we have now are um, nodes being set up around Europe, each one being a small um, part of a larger project. So oh. each one of those nodes then feeds into um, a larger network and together they, they make this large radio dish so, so you can Europe observe becomes a dish like yeah exactly all of yeah. Europe will become a dish and at the moment there's there's a lot of these uh, arrays set up around Europe but we don't have one in Ireland okay. and that's another thing professor peter galler is is leading he's he's trying to to get like a comparatively small amount of of money from from the government or from philanthropic um, investment which would allow him to build a low frequency array in Burr in Ireland, uh, Burr in Offaly is one of the most radio quiet places in the Northern Hemisphere. Right. It would make us one of the best people in the world, radio astronomy, and would also make this kind of radio dish in Europe even bigger because it would have the yeah. furthest point being Ireland. So, I mean, that, that excites me because it could make Ireland a world leader in radio astronomy. Yeah, yeah. And, Bring but again, Burr, Burr back to its former glory. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I mean, Burr had the, the biggest uh, telescope in the world for yeah. nearly 100 years, like 70, 80 years that had... It was, it was the, the biggest telescope in the world. Like, so Amazing, Ireland was the leader in, yeah. in astronomy and astrophysics at that time. So, yeah, it would it would get us back there. So that excites me, but also um, it's tempered a little bit by frustration that, you know, sometimes the the investors don't see what it could, what it could uh, do for us. Or the government maybe think, OK, we, we see the benefits of that 10 years down the line, but we have an election yeah. sooner than that. That's so, the, the whole problem with government, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I mean it's, mm. it's, it's our issue as well. I mean, we have to find ways to, to communicate with the government, engage mm. the government better. Like, obviously, we always complain about the government, but we have a responsibility as well to, to engage with them better. And, and also, like, in terms of science education, I feel that we should probably be educating more young scientists to, to think about a career in, in politics, just so mm. we'll have people in there who we can... Yeah. talk to on, on scientific terms like in The Departed just got a mole in there <laughs> very early on <laughs> it will end exactly like The Departed yeah, <laughs> yeah. And how big a kind of in- infrastructure is that is it like is it a huge when you say node is it like a, a pylon or something like how, what is it yeah it's it's a it's basically the, the, they already have um, an observatory set up in, in Burr it's on the count, on the grounds of the um uh, Burr Castle. Yeah. So the the that's the, where the old one is. Isn't exactly. It? Which yeah. is, it's just such a beautiful um, overlap between the fact that yeah. it's, it's the the Lord Earl of Ross has is, is one of the champions of this because okay. he's he he'd love if Ireland was restored to its former glory in yeah, this area. Yeah. So it's this beautiful site down in the in, on, in Burr Castle that has all the infrastructure there. All we need is uh, I think it's about a million and a half to 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 basically buy the 
the the low frequency array from 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 Europe, right. and I get set up in the field. It's it's a series of of, of small um, pylons and dishes that that together function as Ireland's part of the array, but then also then tie into the the European network. But I mean, it will create it create jobs. It'll give us big data that everyone is always yeah. so so keen to get their hands on. Yeah, yeah. It just it doesn't doesn't seem doesn't seem there doesn't seem to be any reason um, not to do it. But yeah. it, there's there's still the the financial obstacles to get around. Wow. I mean, we have like we have a unique situation in Ireland where we have some of the the, the top tech firms in the in the world are are set up here in like the European headquarters for for Google and LinkedIn, yeah. and Facebook, and Twitter, and they they have jobs there. I mean, like Google have jobs they can't fill because they don't have Irish graduates with um, a high enough level of technical experience and science and computer science and engineering that they can actually fill those those roles. And yet, something like building a a low frequency array in Ireland th- that would not only give us those those type of um, um, f- like funding and 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 investment that mm. would help, but also would inspire probably a lot of young yeah, people yeah. to to realize okay, there's there's lots of jobs in this area. Definitely. I should be thinking about science, technology, engineering, maths as areas I could pursue a career in, and then yeah, it would help our economy. But that's that still seems a harder sell to the government than it should be. Wow, yeah, I know cause you hear all those things about like. People are like, they spent a trillion to get to the moon, but then actually the, the amount of money that came back because of it was actually much more, wasn't it? Yeah. Space, it's harder to show, I suppose. But Space exploration, uh, it always it always pays its debts. Yeah. Um, it, it and science science is one of the the few things where, like, if you do any sort of economic review, it's one of the few areas where if you invest, you will get return on. Yeah. I mean, people people seem to not appreciate how, how incredible that is, that, like, Maybe you won't get the return straight away because sometimes science needs a little bit of time to to find root or to yeah. to produce output. But you're guaranteed to get a return on your investment. Yeah. Well, there's a good note to probably end this. One. <laughs> oh God, <laughs> a political one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> stay in school, kids. Yeah, stay in school. I will try, we'll try and get this one out to to all the schools and uh, tell them to push people towards science. Uh, so uh, thanks very much for coming on. It was great talking to you. Thanks very much for having me. That was episode 21 of the Headstuff Podcast with Joseph Roach. Um, really hope you enjoyed that. I did. I love talking about science. I did too, yeah. So it's interesting great. to listen to a, a real science man. A real man. scientist talk, real about, science man. Uh, talk about science. Yeah, it was, it was really fun. So I hope you enjoyed that. Um, if you did, uh, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and uh, and rate us because that's really important. And comment and, and follow us on SoundCloud and all of that stuff. Uh, we also have a Facebook group now called the Headstuff Podcast, so you can join that and, um, you know, you can leave us feedback or we'll be asking questions from time to time or putting out new information and photographs and all that kind of stuff. So, suggest guests and stuff like yeah, that? All, yeah, suggest guests, anything like that. So uh, get involved with the uh, with the group um, and we'll add you to it. Um, I suggest Brad Pitt. Okay. Um Brad Pitt will be on, on the Headstuff podcast. Episode 22, is he going to be on episode um, He'll be on one of the podcasts, let's okay. just say. Right. <laughs> so uh, you can also follow us on, on Twitter and Facebook and always check out the we- the website, headstuff.org. Um, and we have a t-shirt. You should go and buy a t-shirt. The t-shirts are lovely. Everyone who's bought one so I'm far... I'm not buying one, I want one for free. <laughs> everyone who's bought one so far really enjoys wearing them because it makes them sexier. It is a very nice t-shirt. It's a lovely t-shirt. Yeah. And it's very soft. 
so thanks to Connor here from uh, Wilkins Sound Systems for the sound. Okay. Um, thanks to the ADK Music Group and Western Studios. Thanks to Video Blue for the theme tune and Mikey for the artwork. And most of all, thanks to Joseph Roach for being a wonderful guest. We'll be back next week with another episode.